Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Dr. Graham. The husband of one wife, unfortunately, thank you for clarifying. That's the day we live in. All right, I tell you what we're going to do today, guys. Uh, uh, we'll be in Acts chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. I apologize, there's no media. Um, what, what I'm going to do today is probably just talk. It, um, uh, um, I'm, and I'm probably not going to be as polished as usual. I typically like to have as much of it in both my heart and my brain as usual. But I wrote this on the plane yesterday, had a fantastic meeting. Uh, in Dallas yesterday, just talked with a good friend from Norway who they're just experiencing an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, both in their churches and in businesses and all over the place. And so on the plane coming here, I just jotted it down. So I'll stick with my notes quite a bit. I think it's okay to not be as polished anyway. Jesus had something to say about that, didn't he? On the outside, you're a whitewashed and you're you're polished, but on the inside full of dead men's bones. So I'm going to take the risk that regardless of what it looks like on the outside, that the Lord will honor what's on the inside. And, uh, but I just want to lay a foundation today because uh, I'm lucky enough to have the privilege of being with you again in chapel tomorrow morning. And so what we'll do tomorrow morning is build off of the foundation we laid today. So today I'm just going to talk to you, lay a foundation, both an intellectual and a spiritual foundation and then tomorrow, I will only talk for about 10 minutes, and I mean that. I will only talk for about 10 minutes. The worship team will be with us longer, and we're just going to take some time tomorrow and just um, sit in the presence of God and talk to Him and, uh, and pursue, not necessarily all that He has, but in many ways pursue all who He is tomorrow. But because of the focus tomorrow, I just feel it imperative to lay a foundation. So. Uh, if you don't mind, I need to open up my phone. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 6, says, And at this sound the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one of them, hearing them speak in his own language, they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? The context is during the Feast of Pentecost. The uh, Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh, if you will, or that begins, uh, obviously directly tied to Joel chapter 2. And then what takes place here is there is this magnanimous spiritual encounter, and then um, we see that God engages the intellect and the heart simultaneously, and he uses language to do so. Now, I want to be clear. Pentecostalism, what does, what does it look like to be Pentecostal in the 21st century, okay? Pentecostalism is not a coherent belief system. It is not a belief system. It is not a set of doctrines. From, from the vantage point I'm taking today, Pentecostalism in many ways is a way of life. It is a worldview, a paradigm, a construal tied to Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 17. We'll talk about that more later. But it is not a belief system. Being Pentecostal is not just for the preachers. It is not just for the local church. Pentecostalism, both in the first century and in the 21st century, in many ways, it is a way of life. It is much more than tongues. Unfortunately, theologians have made, a, made Pentecostalism um, centered primarily on the issue of tongues. And because of that, we get so focused on tongues, there have been abuses, there have been some 
Um, inerrant doctrines, there have been some assumptions made, and because of that, the topic of spiritual language is seldom approached anymore. Because if we approach the topic of spiritual language, people immediately think, there we go again, they're talking about Pentecostalism and tongues. So although Pentecostal history is seething with heresies, it is also somnolent with indifference. And so what I want to do today is lay a foundation as to why praying in a spiritual language is vital. Tomorrow I'll give you six or seven reasons is probably all we'll have time for. But I want to be clear, Pentecostalism is much more than tongues, but we see in Acts chapter 2, God uses language to unpack for us the unique relationship that the worldview that comes by being saturated in and with the Holy Spirit, he uses language to lay that foundation. So what does it look like to be Pentecostal in the 21st century? There are many attributes we could discuss. What I want to discuss would be this, uh, would be just one thought. Uh, being Pentecostal means we possess a radical willingness to unlearn. What do you do when you spend your entire life learning a language and in a moment God remakes language? How many of you know that is offensive to the mind? And God seldom cares. God uses language to unpack a truth. So when I think of unlearning, I think of Paul. Remember, Paul spends his life studying under Gamaliel. If anybody had a corner on the market on theology, it's Paul. As a Pharisee, Paul would have instructed, been instructed uh, to subscribe to a set of standards that candidly are impossible for anybody to follow. As a Pharisee, though, it would have been illegal against the law uh, to engage in manual labor. As a Pharisee, it would have been unlawful for him to engage in a conversation with the Gentile about God. As a Pharisee, it would have been unlawful for him to have a conversation with, about, with anybody about God by mentioning God's name because he was not allowed to mention the ineffable name. He could not say Yahweh. He could not say Jehovah. And as a Pharisee, it would have been unlawful for him to find himself in proximity of people who lived a sinful lifestyle. Ironically, a Pharisee who's been instructed, don't engage in manual labor, voluntarily chooses to become a tent maker. Ironically, a Pharisee who has been taught do not have a conversation with Gentiles about God is called by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Ironically, a Pharisee who's been taught you cannot mention God's ineffable name, he creates words to describe God, language. He finds new language to draw attention to the one who does not change. Paul possessed a radical willingness to unlearn what he had been taught. And this is significant in our day and age because there's a difference between a biblical mandate a community standard, and a personal preference. There is a difference between a biblical mandate, a community standard, and a personal preference. A biblical mandate would be, um, there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Is everybody with me? 
That's a mandate. Paul, after encountering Jesus, would have known Jesus is not the preferred way. He is the only way. The biblical mandate is go into all the world and preach the gospel for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. If I could juxtapose those verses. The biblical mandate is clear. The community standard, for example, in the city of Ephesus would have been artistic expression. Remember Ephesus, depending upon what book you read, had about 250,000 people. Dominant industry in the most prosperous region of the Roman Empire would have been art. About 50 gods or goddesses, the most notable being Artemis, from which we derive the word art. Artemis, uh, a, a deity worshipped in the ancient city of Ephesus. And the industry is you go to Ephesus to, through art, make your god. And so Paul, who has the biblical mandate of preach the gospel, there's no other name under heaven, finds himself in a community where the community standard is art. What does he do? He embraces the community standard and then he envelops a personal preference. In Ephesians 1, when he's sharing the gospel with the Ephesians, he says, you are God's workmanship, workmanship, poema, you are God's poem. And, and he's, he's saying, um, hey, people come from all over the world to use art to create God, but what you don't know is you are God's art. That's what he's saying. So he takes a biblical mandate that is inarguable, a community standard that we could say somebody could relate to, and then God is okay with Paul taking a personal preference, and he takes a word from their vocabulary, and he ties it to the gospel. As a Pharisee, that would have been illegal for Paul to do. The Holy Spirit allows us to unlearn what is necessary to unlearn so that we can see the kingdom of God come. And it is paramount in our day and age that we possess, as James K.A. Smith says, a radical openness to God. Now, Pentecostal spirituality is much more than tongues. I said that. It is uniquely tied to Jesus. Let's not forget that. It is tied to Jesus. It is tied to the kingdom of God. It is tied to the gifts of the Spirit. And let's not forget the fruit of the Spirit. It is tied to all of that. And for, for just the moment today, what I want to do is focus on the role language plays in unlearning. Why did God choose language to be the thing that in many ways, whether, whether you're a Pentecostal or charismatic or a cessationist, nobody can ignore the role language plays in the text in Acts chapter 2. Pentecostal history seized with heresy and is also somnolent with indifference. Pentecostalism, unfortunately, has ceased being a way of life, and it, unfortunately, has been relegated to a belief system. And because we have all seen spiritual abuses, for example, um, there Throughout church history, there was a doctrine that if you don't speak in tongues, you can't be saved. How unfortunate is that? Okay. But, or maybe you've been in a camp setting where somebody mean, meant well and they were praying for you to, to be filled or baptized in the Holy Spirit and they just said, repeat after me. Or maybe they put their hand on you and they're trying to push you down a bit. I'm not being mean. I, I think God does have a grace for people when they get excited. But we're called to steward our own soul and not let our excitement be greater than our responsibility, to quote, 
quote something I taught my preschool daughters. But because we've seen the abuses, Pentecostalism has metamorphosed, or I would say it's undergone um, a mitosis. And because of that, I think the enemy has wreaked havoc and done an indelible, incredible job of robbing us of how profound it is to pray in a spiritual language. Listen to what Gordon Lynch said. There's a book called The New Spirituality. If you've never read it, I'd encourage you to read it. You gotta eat the meat and throw out the bones. This is what he said, looking at our current spiritual landscape. When David Tacey looks at the new spirituality, he sees a promising upsurge of an open-minded, generous mysticism amongst the younger people. James Herrick sees a threat to orthodox doctrinal Christianity. Jeremy Coretti and Richard King see an insidious ideological trick of late modern capitalism. And then he quotes John Drain, who sees both a challenge and a missiological opportunity for the Christian church. There are socialization patterns that govern how we interact with spiritual realities. When you think of a social, a social pattern, you gotta land on language. For example, and, and I've covered this in some of the classes, if I spell the word C-O-M-B-I-N-E, some of you think that that word is combined. Well, describe what it looks like to combine something. You take your flour, your butter, your sugar, your eggs, your vanilla, and your chocolate chips, and you don't make cookies, you make cookie dough. That's what you do. Um, or when I say the word combine, I'm going to combine, um, you know, the, the boxes from the garage with the boxes in the living room and the U-Haul because we're moving. But if you're from the great state of Iowa and I spell the word C-O-M-B-I-N-E, you don't think combine, you think combine. You think about a big John Deere tractor that harvests corn in the fall, okay? The same, the same word with the exact same spelling, but because of your socialization pattern, you interpret that reality different. Who's right? It's not a matter of right or wrong. And that, theologically, that's where we land. It's who's right, who's wrong. No, let's just understand there are socialization patterns that govern how we understand spiritual realities. Let me give you two examples. Acts chapter six, there's a social reality. The Greek widows have a need and out of that, a spiritual reality emerges on the earth, and the role of deacon comes. You know, William Seymour, at the turn of the 20th century at the Azusa Street Revival, remember William Seymour, I talked about him in chapel a couple weeks ago. I'm sure you don't remember even what you wore yesterday. I don't either. But William Seymour was the African-American preacher who went to Southern California and had a profound role that the sovereign one allowed him to play. For years, William Seymour, this is what he said was the initial evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. He said the initial evidence, not physical, but the initial evidence is what he said of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, and I quote, is, an, is divine love. Tied to Romans 5.5, 5, I believe, if that's the wrong reference, I know it's in Romans 5, that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in many ways is an outpouring of divine love. Why would Seymour say that? Remember, there are socialization patterns that govern how we define spiritual realities. Well, at a time when black and white didn't even share a meal together, Seymour looks out and what brings them together, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit manifested when God remakes language for the blacks and the whites spoke the same language but they wouldn't talk to one another. 
God says, in a moment, I can remake language. How much more in a moment can I remake how you view the color of somebody's skin? And we've heard the quote, uh, the color line is washed away in the bloodline. But for Seymour, the evidence that Pentecost was happening was there is a unity between the races and the social classes and the genders. Is he right or wrong? Well, it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's, it's a matter of that's how Seymour understood the word combine. Are you with me? So I wonder, are there ever socialization patterns in our life that sabotage what God is doing? For Seymour's perspective at Azusa would have been very different than his white counterparts because to them it was not an issue that the races were coming together. Quite candidly, there is some documentation that at times Seymour would put a potato sack over his hands and head because some of the whites didn't want a man of color praying for him. So when Seymour saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he saw unity. He saw a, a, a similitude between races. Ah, oh, it's an outpouring of divine love. What's right or wrong? It's not a matter of right or wrong. It's a matter of sometimes there are social patterns that govern how we define spiritual realities. A great example of that from Pentecostal history and theology is our understanding of tongues. Um, glossolalia and xenolalia. There's a missiolinguistic view of tongues. Typically, early Pentecostals thought that when you were baptized in the Holy Spirit and you spoke in a spiritual language... God was giving you a language to go to another country so that you could preach the gospel and you don't need a translator. Well, people are speaking in tongues and they're like, man, I wonder what country I'm supposed to go to. And so, candidly, and thank God for the pioneers and for their sacrifice, we can learn much from them. Many of them sold everything, hopped on a boat, sailed halfway around the world, got off the shore, and they're like, okay, I think I'm supposed to go here. They get off. They start speaking in tongues. Nobody has a clue what they're saying. And they quickly realized, okay, God's called us here, but maybe what it took to get us here is not necessarily the whole story. So it doesn't mean their doctrine was wrong. I would say maybe it's incomplete. Because in Acts chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, we see that they heard the wonders of God declared in a language that they could understand, but that doesn't mean it's the only purpose. Are you with me? So they thought that the purpose of tongues was a missio-linguistic purpose. Come to find out, sometimes that's accurate, but sometimes we just pray in a spiritual language. Sometimes we just pray in the tongues of angels. And it has more of a, an effect and affect when it comes to prayer than it comes to sharing the gospel. There are socialization patterns that govern how we define spiritual realities. The gospel transmutes into different expressions and language is the common denominator. Language is always the common denominator with the exception of Jesus appearing in somebody's bedroom. Typically, we go somewhere and we will learn the psychographic or the demographic, the dialect, whatever it may be of the people we're trying to preach and more importantly, live the gospel in front of. We place great emphasis on sharing a Jesus that people understand. I have a big issue with, and I'm not casting aspersions, but I have a big issue of somebody who exports the American gospel rather than preaching the gospel. 
If you go to a village in the middle of Africa and all of a sudden there's a guy in a black suit and a white shirt and a black tie and everybody else is wearing like indigenous clothing and a robe, it just makes you wonder, somewhere along the lines, did the guy think that you had to wear a suit to preach the gospel? The point is, is Jesus placed great emphasis on people understanding the gospel in a language they could understand. That's why when he healed the deaf mute, he didn't just heal the deaf mute. He used sign language when he healed the deaf mute. So the gospel transmutes into different spiritual expressions and language is the common denominator. Paul, you are God's workmanship. In the city of Ephesus where they would have understood He's taking something we are familiar with, like art, and now he didn't have to break down walls. All he has to do is grab them by the hand and walk across the bridge he built with them together. The first three miracles recorded in the Gospel of John are directly related to the three deities that were worshipped in Asia Minor, the region John is writing to. Remember, um, you've got, I wrote them down so I wouldn't forget, I'm, I'm not that smart. You've got Dionysius was the god who turned water into wine. Asclepius was the god of healing, and Demeter was the goddess of breath. The first three miracles that the Spirit inspires John to write in his gospel to those in Asia Minor are directly related to the, the three dominant deities that they would have been familiar with. What, what's the point? God is saying, listen, you think, you think Dionysius turned water into wine? Listen, Jesus can do that. Why Dionysius didn't climb up on a cross and die for you, Jesus did. Okay? The gospel transmutes into different expressions, and language is the common denominator. I'm running out of time. If you talk to a baby boomer, they would, this is how a typical baby boomer may describe Jesus. Jesus was a nice hippie. Jesus doesn't care if we wear shoes in church. You study the Jesus movement. There was, you know, this big thing of people wandering into church with long hair and no shoes on and, and uh, I mean, just whatever. I mean, nowadays, it's like, who cares? I mean, like, you're not wearing shoes. Aren't you afraid you're going to get a fungus? But, you know, our, our mind doesn't immediately go to spiritual disrespect. We're just thinking it's cold out. You live in Minneapolis. You should have on shoes and socks. But if you talk to somebody today, I wonder if this is how they would describe Jesus. And I'm going to read it so I don't mess it up. This is how Macy uh, described it. He would describe Jesus this way at a time where social activism is rampant. He says, Jesus was an anti-capitalist insurrectionist murdered by law enforcement in broad daylight. How many of you know, you walked the street, I was just in Philadelphia a couple days ago. After speaking, it, none of that matters. I went and got a cheesesteak from Geno's. Can I get a witness, man? It was, it was my first ever real deal Philly cheesesteak. And it was freezing. It was in the 30s. We're eating it on the street. We held up our cheesesteaks and toasted. We toasted cheesesteaks. People looked at us like we were nuts, but it was a great time. And the protesters were on the streets of Philadelphia. You walk out there and you start talking about Jesus being an anti-capitalist insurrectionist who was murdered by law enforcement in broad daylight, it's true. Wait a second, who's Jesus? So Jesus isn't a Republican with a shotgun in the back of his pickup truck? Okay. And I, I, mean, I mean no, no disrespect by that because 
the reality is, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, Independent, or Green Party, we still need to pray for our country. But here's my point. Sometimes we export the American version of the gospel rather than just the gospel. And God places a premium on language. How ironic is it that during the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God takes something that will violate the logic like no other, language, and he remakes it in a moment. If God can remake language, what else can he remake? So Pentecostalism is not just for the preachers. It's not just so we can lay hands on somebody at the office and see them healed. God does those things, and we need that. But it is a construct tied to Acts 2 and Acts 17. Whereas believers in Christ, we realize that the Holy Spirit can help us unlearn those things that we have been taught our entire life. And in a moment, he doesn't always see fit to explain why. There is immense value in the fact that God remade language. I'll share one more thought and then I need to stop. Isn't it interesting that in Exodus chapter 3, Moses encounters God at the burning bush and out of that encounter that is inexplicable, quite candidly, it's weird, out of that encounter, God lights a bush on fire and the bush isn't consumed. Moses immediately has questions. He has questions. He has uncertainties. Who will I tell them sent me? You really want me to stand in front of Pharaoh? He has questions. He has uncertainties. There is no language to describe what in the world just happened with Moses. God up to that point did not reveal himself as far as we know to anybody in a bush by setting it on fire but preventing it from being consumed. Moses has questions and uncertainties and what does God do? God takes language, a socialization pattern, and he wraps an attribute of himself around it even though it doesn't contain him and he gives himself a new name to Moses, I am. Does that mean God changes? No. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I, the Lord, do not change. What does it mean? It means that there's this realm of God that exists beyond language. And every now and then, God will open up his dictionary and turn the page and let us in on a little bit more of his vocabulary. Sometimes we wait for the language to come before we go to Egypt to liberate both God's people and God's purpose. Sometimes we wait for the language, but a Pentecostal says, you know what, God, I am open to you doing something in my life and through my life that is beyond the confounds of language, and I'm okay if the language comes later. Some of you want to be in business, but you're not quite sure what it looks like to be a Pentecostal in business. It's okay if you're not sure. The language will come. You just start walking to Egypt. You start heading towards that place where God wants you to bring freedom and liberation and then language will come. Some of you, God's calling you to education. You're, you, you will be empowered by the Spirit to shape education. 
How is that going to work? I don't know. The language will come later. Rather than waiting for the language to come and then you start walking, do what Moses did. Go to Egypt and for the rest of your life, God will unpack language so that you can create a framework. But if you want to put God in a neat and tidy set of propositional and, uh, structures before you obey him, you commit what Schultz calls linguistic idolatry. A Pentecostal is somebody who says, I will not put God in a box. Remember, sometimes God allows the Ark of the Covenant to be captured by the Philistines just to show his people I was never in the box to begin with. Could it be, could it be that what we're experiencing in our culture is an opportunity, not an attack, but an opportunity for the people of God who are Pentecostal to say, God, I want to unlearn. I possess a radical openness, and if you can remake language, you can remake education, business, the church, the family, and you fill in the blank. So tomorrow, I'm gonna give you seven reasons why I pray in the spirit. There are dozens, I'll give you seven. I'll talk for 10 minutes. Then we're just gonna take some time. We'll pray for people who want to encounter Jesus. And if you're open to encountering Jesus by praying in a spiritual language, we'll pray with you. If you already pray in a spiritual language, maybe you'll be reminded of how profound that gift is. But until then, Father, um, I bless everybody in the room with a radical openness to unlearn what we think we know that we will be willing to go, that we will be willing to trust you beyond the finitude of language without violating your word, beyond the finitude of language, that we would be radically open to the work of God in our generation. In Jesus' name, amen. The altars are open if you want to stay and pray. Otherwise, have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow.